Luno, the fastest, easiest way to buy Bitcoin. If you're just getting into crypto, it's the perfect place to start. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lay High Open Show powered by Icon Plus Capital, the VC firm and sponsored by BlockFi and Luno. So today I have a very interesting guest to give us a whole new perspective, a topic which I've actually not spoken about before. But before we do, um, as usual, I do want to let you know that at the moment I'm giving a really special offer on my paperback book, Undressing Bitcoin. Everybody who has the paperback, I'm actually giving away a free version of the audio before the audio goes live next week. So of course, it's just limited time before the audio goes live. I'm giving everyone who has the paperback free access to the audiobook. So definitely check that out. I think I've left it somewhere on my Twitter profile. So you can check that out. So joining me today is writer and journalist. It is Lee Quinn. Lee, how are you? Hey, everybody. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat to you. We've spoken a little bit. We've come across each other a little bit, but I don't know a lot about you. I know you're a writer, I know you're a journalist, I've seen a lot of your work, but I'd love to learn more about you. Before crypto, what's your background and where are you from? Yeah, life before crypto. Yeah. Um, so I'm originally from California. I've been a journalist for roughly a decade. So I've worked with organizations like TechCrunch, the Jerusalem Post, um, LA Times, yada yada i've been doing this for a while previously i was covering politics in the middle east i lived in israel for almost five years doing that then i moved to new york and i uh, was offered a job as a sex writer i worked for mike and also um, a variety of publications like salon different things teen vogue um, covering things related to gender issues and i switched into crypto in 2017 completely by chance i was interviewing with newsweek media group and originally interviewing for a job in fashion tech and they were like actually we need someone to cover this whole blockchain thing do you think you can handle it and i can't believe i literally said i was like it's like a chain of blocks right i'm sure i can figure this out um i briefly heard about bitcoin back when i was in israel uh, in relation to darknet markets and um some of the things I was uh, reporting on related to sex trafficking and, and uh, sexual abuse. Uh, and so when I was exposed, I guess, to this different side, this more social side, uh, this side that has so much potential in terms of doing good for the world, I was really fascinated. And uh, it's been four years, so been there ever since. So you have done so much. You mentioned reporting in Israel, you mentioned sex trafficking, mm -hmm. um, just a whole load of very different things. What would you say the most interesting or even like the weirdest thing you've done in your journalism career? Because it can get weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, it can get super weird. Um, wow, that's a really good question. I don't know what the weirdest thing is I've ever done. Um, porn conferences are really fun and, and quirky and weird. But honestly, crypto conferences are equally weird and quirky. <laughs> um, I don't Did you say porn conferences? What's a, yeah. what's a porn conference? Exactly like a crypto conference, there'll be conferences in which um, er, adult performers and people who work in the industry get together. They talk about, you know, new uh, payment tools. They talk about broadcasting tools. They talk about, you know, uh, compliance issues, all the things that are relevant to their industry. That is so fascinating. In terms of yeah. this industry, because I know you talk about it a lot. I'd love to learn a little bit more about it. You say that they are a very... Um, let's just say they're sort of at the forefront when it comes to crypto yeah. adoption because yeah. there's a lot of issues that they face. Explain that to me. Yeah, definitely. So I'll have to confess that actually my family is pretty religious and conservative. I came into journalism with a very conservative perspective. And I was actually, if you had probably asked me when I was like 22 or something, I would have said porn is like bad for women and, you know, always exploitive. And it was only through reporting on this industry that I uh, changed my opinion. There are a lot of people who are actively choosing this who have advanced degrees or have a lot of other opportunities and they're doing it because it's frankly the way they have the most freedom and the most fun in their work. Uh, and there's a lot of ways, especially these days, when people can broadcast from home, they can choose who they record with, what they record, how they uh, project themselves, as opposed to being like basically an entertainer who is controlled by a studio. Um, there's a lot of freedom that these people have, a lot of them. Uh, so certainly not everyone, but society is still, I mean, honestly, the worst thing um, about being an adult entertainer is the way that banks and other institutions treat you. Good luck taking anyone to court if they treat you wrong. The court will probably not side in your favor. And in fact, there are some people who might lose custody of their kids really for doing nothing wrong, um, but just what because there's a wrong? stigma. So, so like, what mm. would a bank do that is wrong? 
Uh, so a bank can shut down their account considering it a reputational risk, even if what they're doing is perfectly legal. Um, it's The porn industry is perfectly legal industry in California and in Nevada and a lot of places in the US. Um, but it can, it's considered a reputational risk the same way that guns or marijuana are. So they can lose access to all their funds. They can lose all their funds. They can get blacklisted and that applies not only to your bank account, but that applies to like your PayPal, your Cash App, your Facebook, like literally anything that can connect your government ID, you can get banned from all of those things at once. Even sometimes developer sites like Braintree uh, will ban a sex, work sex worker. So it was really crazy to me to watch that there are women who are choosing this line of work, doing it safely and lawfully, they pay taxes, um, and still being treated like criminals um, and really almost hunted by the government, like anywhere they are online, being kicked off, being restricted. Um, and I mean, in addition to that, they have to deal with guys who, you know, might be a stalker or weird. So like there's this dual um, uh, safety risk that they have. So because of that, um, I mean, honestly, most of the sex workers I talk to are so much better at using cypherpunk tools than I ever will be because they have to uh, to protect themselves yeah. and their family. What fascinated me from from that the most was was I guess your change. Yeah, you said you come from a very conservative background initially. You know, you thought porn was bad or evil. Mm -hmm. What was it that really changed your mind? Because I have a different opinion on porn to you, but that doesn't really matter. But I'm interested to know what changed your mind. I guess just meeting a lot of the people who are choosing to do it and seeing that they are, I've like as a journalist. There's a lot of times that that job can feel really exploitive. You know, you can be forced to write things that you don't believe in um, mm. or you'll lose your job. You can be forced to um, interview people that you feel like don't deserve the attention or frankly will be harmed by the attention. Um, and a lot of sex workers I talk to are exploited less in their jobs <laughs> than the journalists I know. Um, they choose who they sell to, what they sell, how often they do it, what their price is, and all of these different kinds of choices that go into making a work environment that seems really safe and empowering for them. That's not everybody. There are certainly people like all jobs, right? Like yeah. not everyone who's a janitor feels empowered about being a janitor. But the idea that like, I met so many mothers and even grandmothers, frankly, um, and just people who I didn't think of as like young and impressionable who are like making these active choices and gaining economic freedom through that, that it just changed my mind in terms of like, people should have the right to make those choices with their bodies if they want to. And the idea that like, no one is stopping Nicki Minaj from making a, a music video that is basically pornographic. Um, mm -hmm. But so like if you are owned by a studio, if you have like handlers, corporate handlers, it's perfectly fine for you to sell this content. But if you are an independent woman who's choosing to do it yourself and get all the profits, you'll face all these banking restrictions. That feels to me like an archaic uh, overhang of the idea that women don't own their own bodies and don't have the right to make those choices. I think it's an interesting comparison because porn doesn't necessarily mean hard porn. It can be soft porn. Mm. And I would certainly agree that Nicki Minaj and to be honest, the rest of that kind of industry is absolutely soft porn. Um, 100% I'm with you. Um, but just in terms of crypto then, how did you actually stumble across that? Yeah. So uh, when I was working for, so first when I was working in Israel, uh, yeah. Some people were using this weird Bitcoin thing on darknet markets. And so I just heard about that very briefly. Uh, then when I was in New York and I was working for a Newsweek media group, they assigned me to this beat. And so it was my job to write about it all day, every day. Um, and I was very lucky that I already had these contacts uh, from the porn industry because a lot of those women uh, will save for their retirement um, or for their kids' college funds, for example, in Bitcoin because the bank, you can't get cut off. You know, you just hold it yourself. Yeah. Um, and so from that combination of things, my work assigning it to me and having all these contacts who had this experience that they could share with me, I was really lucky that I was able to really dive he um, head first into the industry. So are you Bitcoin only? You know, it's, it's such a hot topic. Or do you look at the, the cryptocurrency industry as a whole? You look at the ecosystem, you look at DeFi and you're just like, you know, this is the future. Everything will be built on all of this, whether it's Bitcoin or something else. I'm a money maximalist. I like money. Um, mm -hmm. So hmm, I'm not against other cryptocurrencies at all as they exist. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I've used them. I've sold NFTs uh, with my poems inside. Yeah. And I can always use ETH to buy Bitcoin if that's what I want. I don't see it as wrong or weird to use other kinds of money if that's what people want to use. 
When I'm in Israel, I use shekels. When I'm uh, transacting with the Ethereum community, they want to transact with me in Ether stablecoins. And that just opens me up to more clients and more people I can collaborate with, um, even if all I want to hold myself is Bitcoin. But from like a philosophical standpoint, right? Because it is quite an emotional topic. It just is. It gets very philosophical and emotional, you know? How yeah. do you feel? Are you Bitcoin only, you know? Or are you just using and using the other coins just for the sake of people wanting to buy and, buy and sell with you in those um, assets? I don't feel emotionally attached to the dollar, um, although I use right. it a lot. I don't feel emotionally attached to um, ETH or to DAI or to any of the other um, currencies that I've used. Um, it's just like the dollar. It's, it's, it's just a, a means to an end. It's a means to transact um, and to gain value. Um, I don't feel philosophically that it's wrong to do those things. I do feel pretty strongly about selling it to people um, especially people who might not be educated or have access to other kinds of resources. Um, I think yeah, we should be very, very uh, uh, selective and careful about the way that we talk about uh, cryptocurrency, but I don't think there's anything morally wrong with using it. No, I'm totally with you. I think it's um, it's unfortunate that there's so much um, tribalism in the space. Um, I think everything offers interesting value and it'd be impossible to predict in 10 years, in 20 years, what the market demands and what can be built. And I, oh, yeah. I, I think I think it's an interesting space and I'm so excited to see what else happens. But in terms of your career, mm -hmm. why did you decide to then stay in crypto? You must have had a moment where you were just like, yeah, this makes sense. This is the yeah. future. Um, I'm just really lucky. So because I had this long history of journalism and different kinds of topics, you know, politics, culture, um, before I came to crypto, I, I understood how hard it is to make a difference. Um, maybe I wrote an article that was read by like 6 million people, but most of them forgot it within 10 minutes of reading it, you know, or something like that. I also did, um, some of the election politics around, uh, Trump's first yeah. election. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was pretty awful. Um, and although reporting in the Bitcoin space can be very difficult and very exhausting, you make a huge difference with your readers. I mean, I get letters all the time from people telling me like, oh, I'm finally getting my first hardware wallet because I read your thing and I feel like it's not too scary for me. Thank you so much. Or, yeah. oh, I didn't even know that this was possible for me to use it this way. Or, um, oh, I gave this to my cousin and like she was in an abusive relationship and now she's saving Bitcoin herself to like wow. get a lawyer and get out or whatever these things are. Like you have this like really direct relationship relationship with your readership and that's so rewarding that like I can't imagine wanting to cover anything else that makes so much sense I feel the same I feel like everything matters more everything means more you know whatever it is whether you're even on a podcast like this this conversation has more impact than the traditional world because you're right it's, it's so saturated the connection has been very much disjointed between you and your reader or you and your listeners whatever it is mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of reporting on it, how how would you say reporting on crypto is different to reporting on traditional news? You said, you know, Trump's mm. election and what was it? Oh, my gosh. 15 or something, 16? Mm -hmm. Yeah, something like that. I think it was 15. Um, wow, it's it's so, so, so different. Um, it's like it, it combines all of these different things. I would say that the thing that it's most similar to reporting on that I have experience with is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I say that because it's extremely polarizing. Everyone's going to be upset with you no matter what you say, but mm -hmm. it's very, very hard to get to um, an objective view of facts. You know, one side will say one thing, one side will say a totally different thing. Um, and unlike the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where like maybe you might go to like Amnesty International or the UN to look at um, uh, data that is supposed to be less biased. Supposed uh, to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> supposed to be, not really. But like at least there's, at least we know who those players are, right? Mm -hmm. The crypto space is so new that like you have no idea what are people's motives, where this data is coming from. Like you would really have to be a very uh, sophisticated engineer to fact check a lot of these articles. And nobody in journalism actually has time for like to spend literally 24 hours fact checking a thing, making sure that code is clean, making sure that people actually own what they say they own. Um, so you have to figure out how to fact check in a, a very different way and to always have this mentality of understanding like, things will change. You could come up with better data, you know, like 10 minutes after the article is published and want to update. In traditional journalism, updates are really bad. Like you, you'll get criticized from your editors about it. Even if the data wasn't available before and you just want to make it a better article, uh, it, there's this feeling that like 
an update means that you did something wrong. And so they don't want to do it. Um, I think with a crypto mentality, you have to take this approach of like, um, releasing it to the wild becomes this live thing and you do the best you can to keep continually updating it with the best data that you can in the circumstance you have. And that's just a totally different approach to fact checking into reporting. I feel like that was when I was writing my book, everything yeah. was changing. And I was like, gosh, guys, can the community just stop for a second? I'm trying to get something out. Um, yeah, but- it's so fast. Oh my God, it's so fast. It is so fast. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, you compared it to the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict because that that resonates, you know. There's never that um, that objective truth, unfortunately. Things are moving, changing. Everything's a reaction of a reaction. Yeah. Um, but fact-checking is a really... I'm, I'm glad you, you, you pulled that up because we had the Reuters uh, headline um, yeah. about Litecoin. So that was interesting because you can tell me, you know, Reuters they that would they they just copy headlines of other news headlines of other news headlines it came through on the wire apparently and you know they just sort of oh if if BBC for example are printing it then it must be correct what was your take on that why did they mess that up so much they're supposed to be the reputable ones we're the ones that need to do the update right I have so much sympathy for that stuff um it's, it's not unique to Reuters. Everyone in the mainstream media business these days is aggregating. Um, and when you're, when you're like the lowest level journalist on the team, like for example, I've interviewed with some of the, I mean, really top names that you would consider like, okay, these are the people that we always trust. They're super great. And uh, when I would interview with them, they'd be like, we need you to write ten, uh, 10 articles a day. And okay, if you're doing 10 articles a day in a 10 hour work day, and you know, let's say, it's crazy. The, yeah, 30 to 40 minutes of that is actually like getting it up on the website, loading it into CMS, putting a photo, putting tag words, you know, emailing your boss to tell it's up, whatever, all that administration. You're telling me what you want me to do is write an article in 20 minutes. That's not something I could feasibly fact check, like in any stretch of the imagination. Um, so like just the expectations that are put on these low-level reporters is so, so high. And if you don't meet them, they'll just fire you and find someone else who's eager uh, to do your job. So I have so much sympathy for people who... Uh, fall for uh, these pranks uh, on like wire press releases that are not true um, because they're just given an impossible situation. I think that's why it's really important for people to uh, find media that they trust and the best they can um, and then pay for it because there's really no way that when you're uh, consuming a free product that that product is going to be made to serve you. It's just not. What is your overall opinion on the mainstream media as somebody who has been in crypto for four years now um you know obviously you have that traditional background but it is for example we had the headline i think it was cnbc oh there's so much to talk about my gosh okay well, there's <laughs> inflation for example mm-hmm. the whole trying to make inflation sound pretty um mm-hmm. you know uh just because inflation is rising that means higher salaries well that's misinformation number one yeah. number two um the way they're talking about el salvador is really interesting mm-hmm. um you know they said that el salvador adopting bitcoin would would mean i think it's western union would lose around 400 million a year um but actually that means you're to- saving exactly <laughs> as opposed to you know helping an impoverished nation yeah. save 400 million a year so what's your take i think those headlines do their job and if their job is to make people click then Ugh. they're effective yeah, right. But that, that's exactly you start to realize the incentive model is against you as a reader as opposed to for you and try and find new sources that uh, the incentive model is to serve you. Because um, otherwise, I mean, like nobody is shocked when you go into a casino and you lose to the house. The house always wins. That's kind of what mainstream media has become. Doesn't. OK, but we know that that's a gambling house. Mainstream media holds itself supposedly to this beautiful, incredible standard. And we are God's truth. You know, we are especially the BBC in the UK. It, it's quite it's quite insufferable, if I'm honest, um, you know, and the, yeah, they hold themselves to this this truth like they're doing God's work. Did, did it, Was there something in that that put you off working in that kind of industry? Yeah, totally. I mean, and to be fair, I still do uh, sometimes pitch and work with uh, mainstream outlets. But yeah, when I thought about wanting to progress my career, one of the reasons that I'm working independently now and not focusing on trying to get a staff job somewhere like that is because it's so annoying and infuriating even this whole, um, I have the right opinion for a reason, uh, for a reason, like I get paid to be so righteous kind of Mm. attitude. You have to remember that a lot of people got into this industry because they want to make a difference in the world. 
um, they, they came in with these um, big idealistic visions and then they yeah. are confronted with this capitalist monstrosity that just twists their, their ability to do anything good. Um, and so a lot of people still, you can do good with an article though, to be fair. Um, I'll give an example of like, I wrote one article um, about an, an educational program in Afghanistan. It was a zillion years ago uh, that was being defunded. Um, and suddenly after my article was published, they found the funding to keep the school open. Like media can make yes. a huge difference. Um, but just the question of whether that's what you actually do day to day is it's very rare. And people don't really have that, uh, that connect between the actual impact they're having on the world day to day versus what their intentions were when they came in and tried. And do you think we're going to get, do you think this is going to get worse? I mean, at the end of the day, the whole idea behind journalism was that it was the mediator to tell you the truth, you know, someone, a source that you can rely on. That's certainly how, like you said, the BBC and Reuters present themselves and the rest of American news outlets. They really present themselves as like, you know, doing God's work. That's really dangerous because there are still people that believe that. So do you think we're going to get to a point where people, number one, wake up and realize that actually these people, their job is to have headlines, yeah, make crazy headlines and, and get the clicks? Mm -hmm. And number two, do you think we'll get to a place where we can actually have some um, objective journalism? So there is objective journalism that exists, right? Um, there are some amazing- Like unbiased. I mean, what is bias? Every human being has bias, right? I think the, the best way to be unbiased is to acknowledge what your biases are so that people can come in and read it with that, uh, with that frame. Um, and there is some amazing journalism that still exists. I mean, there are some great nonprofits. There are some good, um, and like, I, I wanna actually maybe push back against that idea that the original idea of journalism was to have an objective truth. At least in the United States, when we think of the colonial newspaper history, I mean, like Ben Franklin was running a newspaper, like they were actually for political parties. They were a way to get messages out um, promoted by a particular group. And then, like, as we see the evolution of journalism, you see, OK, well, how do you convince people to buy more of your paper? Then you market it not as the Republican paper or the Democrat paper. You market it as the truth paper. And that should hopefully bring more people in across party lines. Like there's there was not like an original concept of like, the journalism wasn't about making the Bible. It was about talking to people before the internet or the phones existed. And the best way to get information from point A to point B was to print it and send it out. So I think that we're seeing something that's moving back along those lines of understanding that journalism has an agenda. Like somebody took the time to write this up, print this up and get it in front of your eyeballs. That was expensive. What do they want out of you when they took all this time and money to do that, right? And so, I hope that us as consumers can um, promote for young people and also amongst ourselves media literacy so that we can identify those motivations from the media. Because then there could be like great information in the thing, um, but it's framed in such a way to make me feel a certain way. But if I come into it being like, oh, they're trying to piss me off. Okay, let's take that aside. D is that true? Is this true? And then I can use that information to benefit myself. I'm an adult, I can make those choices. Um, the problem is, is when we don't realize that we're being manipulated. So just, uh, I think improving education on uh, media literacy and like the understanding of how that industry works is the only way to kind of counteract uh, that mass scale manipulation that is happening. Would you agree that there seems to be um, a narrative across all media right now that, you know, inflation isn't as bad as it as we as we think and crypto is bad? Would you agree that there seems uh, to be that narrative? Yeah, that, that seems to be a popular opinion, a very popular opinion. Okay, so why do you think that's the case? Why do you think there's this anti-crypto narrative in across the media, globally? I think, I think it has a lot more to do with the reputation of the loudest Bitcoiners than it has to do with the technology itself. Like when they hear Bitcoin, all they do is associate it with like, some angry Trump supporting troll who like is going to like post stakes everywhere and is all about guns. And actually there's nothing wrong with supporting Trump or liking stakes or guns. Um, but this uh, association of the asset with this like caricature and yeah. often that caricature being like the loudest, meanest person on the internet makes people feel like it's this like, um, it makes them think something that is actually not true at all to the original technology. Like we're all wearing pants and a shirt. That doesn't mean that people who wear pants and shirts do X, Y, Z thing. Um, I think as people are exposed to a wider variety of people who use these tools and for a wider variety of reasons, um, that that stigma will lessen. But at the moment, you're correct. That stigma is 
extremely intense. And like literally anytime I say Bitcoin, people assume that means that I'm like, um, want to like take down the government and that I want to like yell at them about running a server in their house. And like, maybe grandma doesn't need to run a server in her house or, or doesn't know how, and I'm not going to judge her for that, you know? Yeah. But what about inflation? Because mm -hmm. inflation is clearly a problem. And, you know, you had the Fed coming out with, oh, it's transitory, or maybe it's not actually transitory. Um, and perhaps inflation is good. You know, all these rubbish headlines, which I think have been um, recycled in the media. Why would they do that? When we know that this is not a good idea, we're already seeing prices increase um, across the world. I mean, in the UK, inflation right now is pretty bad. So it's not an honest message. Isn't it more comforting to think that you can print more money and then that's good than the idea that there are finite resources and we need to figure out how to deal with what we already have? Like, I feel like that's yeah. a much more comforting message. If I was going to try and sell something to someone who doesn't understand what the words mean, I would definitely try and sell them something that's sweeter and goes down easier. It makes you just, it makes you really just want to give up on, on the media and people have, you know? Yeah, I actually really support it. Um, I think some of this, uh, the best advice I've ever gotten was to only consume media deliberately and purposely. Like if I'm trying to figure yes. out what happened in XYZ place because I have a cousin there and I want to like text her or something and I want to know if her internet's down because there was a hurricane or like, what, you know, whatever it is that I'm looking for a specific piece of information, I look for it. And literally anything else, it's not made to serve me. So I'm not going to consume it. Um, there might be um, writers that I really like. And so I'll like, if they you know, write a thing and I'll be like, okay, maybe I'll read that even though it's not something I'm deliberately seeking out just for entertainment. But I think that people should be much more selective about how they spend their, their reading time, their viewing time, and to know that everything you put in your brain has an impact in some way. So you have to be really protective of yourself. And that's such a great way to put it, actually. Um, I made a tweet the other day sort of saying how, oh my gosh, I turned on the radio for a few minutes mm -hmm. and it felt like doomsday, turned it off. But you're at, And then everybody was like, oh, well, you need to know what's going on in the world. But you're, you're, you're right. The only thing I want to know is if I need a COVID test to fly, if I need to be vaccinated mm -hmm. to fly. That's all I want to know. So mm -hmm. you're right. When I want to know that, I will intentionally go and search for it and get the information. You do have to be deliberate. It's a great way to put it. Um, in, in terms of Bitcoin then, what would you say some of the biggest challenges are when reporting on it? I know you spoke about fact checking, mm -hmm. but is there anything else which you, which you find to be um, quite a hurdle that you wouldn't really have with traditional news? Yeah, there's just not a lot of great experts to interview about Bitcoin. There are a lot of people who have opinions about Bitcoin. There's not a lot of people who actually know what they're talking about. Um, and it can be very difficult uh, to get interviews with them because they are extremely understandably suspicious of the media. Uh, so even when you are a reporter who is genuinely trying to do the right thing, you know, let's say you're on deadline, you've got two hours, you're going to write this article about Bitcoin, you call up, you know, 20 people who are really involved in the space, who really understand the technology. What are the chances that even four of them will answer you? Because they're just mm. been so conditioned that the media is out to get them. So um, getting really good interviews and sources is a problem. Fact checking is huge and difficult. And also, um, Dealing with the the bureaucratic castle that any publication has. So you don't mm -hmm. only have to convince like, you know, your reader that, for example, Bitcoin mining is not going to boil the oceans. You yeah. have to convince your editor who has a very strong opinion about it and has the ability to change your article uh, with your name on it. Right. So you have to convince him and then you have to convince his editor above him. And you have to like really internally fight this battle in order to uh, for, for research they haven't done for things they don't understand they think that they understand bitcoin and they don't so it's both like the difficulty of getting the information in a timely fashion and then convincing the publication and all the people involved that you did get the right information that you know what you're talking about even if what's what i'm saying is contradictory to what they believe oh my gosh i can really relate to that <laughs> i did yeah. an article recently um for um, a women's magazine about Bitcoin. I was the Bitcoin expert, which was all very exciting. Um, <laughs> but basically, they uh, the two things went wrong, and I was very annoyed. Um, the editors at the top changed it, and before it went live, I was like, "No, no, no! You got to keep it to as I did it. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I don't want this going out." So, two things. First thing was right at the bottom. They asked me, "Do you think it's a male-dominated space?" Mm. Now, my response was, "It is male-dominated, but I don't think that's a problem." X, Y, and Z. Like it is mm -hmm. obviously if you look at the stats, but I don't think it's a problem because blah, blah, blah. 
but they, 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 they twisted it and they changed it to Leia said, this is a male dominated space. Mm. very subtle but it changes the tone and the entire message and that's just not something that I would freely bring up because it's not something yeah. I particularly care about um yeah. and then it, it portrays me in a whole new light and I was very disappointed we got mm -hmm. it fixed very good but I was annoyed yeah and then the, the second thing which is also really interesting is you know you have because we're the so-called bitcoin expert you have big big b and little b yeah and they'd messed it up in the article and I was like, no, you really need to correct it because it looks like I've messed it up because it's my mm. words. Mm. And they wouldn't correct it. Mm. And like, they wouldn't take the time to understand why it was wrong and why it looks bad. Um, we put it out in the end, but like, you know, it, it, it's just frustrating. You're right. You have to get everybody on board and you have to prove that you know what you're talking about, even though it may not make sense to them. And you mentioned uh, sometimes you can't get the changes that you want. Yes. So that's very true. And I can't even count the amount of times that I've been uh, trolled or uh, people wrote me hate mail for changes that I actually crusaded against behind the scenes, but I can't, I couldn't get, I, I lost those. You, you win some, you lose some. Mm -hmm. um, and people have a really hard time understanding because yours is the only name on that article. So not only uh, do you have this uh, real challenge in terms of getting things right, um, but any little thing you mess up, the Bitcoin community is extremely reactive, crypto community in general, um, beyond Bitcoin, extremely reactive, extremely vocal, and you are just gonna take heat for every single thing. And so I totally get why a lot of reporters are just like, I don't think it's worth that. Like it's, it's exhausting and it's frustrating and I would rather avoid it than make a mistake in public. I totally understand why some people have that approach. Um, but I think, and I hope that, you know, some people like you and me, are willing to make those mistakes in public or are willing to fight those battles um, mm. and that we're still able to get out high quality information to the mass audience, right? Because like Bitcoiners can talk to Bitcoiners, they'll write these, you know, 20 page uh, creeds about why it's so amazing to have hard money and that's great, but that's never going to reach a different kind of reader that wasn't already looking for that. So it's really important to have a wide variety of people writing a wide variety of stories um, and making a wide variety of content uh, about Bitcoin that is all um, accurate. On that note, though, um, you know, talking about reporting on Bitcoin in a traditional standpoint, what fascinates me, um, and I didn't know this until Laura Shin had spoken about it, you probably know what I'm about to say, mm. is the idea that you can't hold Bitcoin if you're going to report on Bitcoin. So my mm. first question to you is, do you, you hold crypto, right, despite reporting on it? Very, very small amounts. I honestly liquidate more than I, than I hold, but uh, yeah, I do journalist have some. reasons? Uh, both, I guess. I mean, part of it is just at this point, like a lot of my income is related to the industry. And so if I want to pay rent, that's usually uh, in some ways related to the income that I have accessible. Um, and part of it is, yeah, not wanting to hold. I'm also a public figure, right? This is my name and my face right here, broadcasting, talking about Bitcoin. Um, so we're very vulnerable to wrench attacks. I think it would be very dumb for someone who is publicly putting their name and face to Bitcoin to hold an excessive amount and be public about the fact that they're holding an excessive amount. So I try and liquidate um, whenever I can. Uh, but that being said, I do hold some. It's really necessary for me to do things, right? Like I was just uh, this week trying a lightning node thing. And if I didn't already have Bitcoin, it would have taken me forever to buy it, then transfer it and blah. But because I already had a lightning wallet, like I could start setting up and testing this tool. Um, it is true that I've had editors tell me that this makes me biased and that means that my opinion cannot be trusted. Um, I also hold dollars and I don't see anyone complaining about that. So <laughs> I, feel, I feel like it is true. Like if, if like 90% of your wealth is in Bitcoin, um, it's going to influence your opinion. But if 90% of your wealth is in dollars, that's going to probably end up influence your opinion too. And I, I don't see a huge distinction, although not all editors feel that way. And I think Laura is very smart that she has decided that for her career, it is more beneficial to her to work with some of those editors who have that opinion than it is to hold. And that's that's a choice. Oh gosh, man. Is it, but Laura must obviously be very interested in crypto. She must really mm -hmm. like it to want to cover it so much. So, oh my God, missing out on that kind of opportunity just blows my mind. It's a trade-off, right? Like, you know that you're never going to be able to work with such and such editor and such and such mm -hmm. publication if, if you hold. Um, so I personally have not made that choice and I'm okay with giving up that opportunity cost to have like an amazing byline in this very famous paper. Um, yeah. But other people uh, feel differently and, and I think that's, that's a personal choice.
Yeah, it really, it really fascinates me because mainly because of what you brought up, you know, you hold dollars, you mm-hmm. hold pounds, 90%, maybe even 100% of, of an individual's wealth is in fiat currency. Mm-hmm. And you can still report on that. It sort of reminds me actually um, of Donald Trump because I keep having this conversation. People keep saying Trump is anti-Bitcoin and I don't necessarily think he is. I just think he's a fiat or he's a US dollar maximalist yeah. who understands, you know, the threat that Bitcoin has to the US dollar, therefore doesn't want any, you know, doesn't want any Bitcoin. So in some ways that's like a, you know, a biased policy when, I mean, he obviously he's not president anymore. Everyone has bias. There is no such thing as unbiased. There's only identifying your own bias. Which is the only way forward, which, which is really Mm. interesting in terms of your general perspective about Bitcoin. Um, do you see it then as this store of value? Do you see it as this asset, which is helping, um, either impoverished people, people from difficult, difficult, um, industries like sex workers and stuff. Like what is your, um, general perspective on Bitcoin's use case? So at the moment it's digital money and just like other kinds of digital money. Some people that use it are just gambling and some people that use it, use it because they really need it and they don't have access to those local tools otherwise. I definitely do know of people who um, all around the world, not even just sex workers, you know, whether you're talking about Venezuela, whether you're talking about Iran, whether you're talking about South Africa, um, people that are using Bitcoin for really wholesome and like, you know, PG reasons, (laughs) totally PG, family friendly reasons. And I think that's great. I've heard some really inspiring stories of people who were able to make um, empowering life choices because they had this access to a tool that gave them financial freedom. I'm sure if someone had dropped a million dollars on their doorstep, it would have had a similar financial effect, right? Like they have the freedom of choice at that point. Um, But the only way they got that freedom of choice was through Bitcoin and that's great. I think it's very, very silly when people refer to this asset as if that's the only way people use it because that's not the only way people use it. And that's okay, it's money. People do all kinds of things with money. Um, And I'm not trying to moralize it and say that it's better, like I'm morally superior for having this kind of money versus other people who have different kinds of money. I think that it's pretty evident that it's a good way to save and transact for a few years in the future, at least. It's been around for 10 years and it seems to be very consistent in terms of its history and pattern. I have no idea what the world is gonna look like in a hundred years. Cause if you'd asked someone a hundred years ago what the world would look like today, they never could have predicted Facebook. They never could have predicted a lot of the things that impact our world today. So I can't predict what Bitcoin will be worth in a hundred years. I can say that for the near future that I can see, it seems to still be a pretty good tool uh, for saving and transacting particularly for people who don't have access to the kinds of banking services that a millionaire might. Yeah, for me, it, it's really that endpoint, which I'm just in love with the, the way Bitcoin is completely revolutionizing um, Africa, jumping to the fourth industrial revolution of, you know, smart technology and, and all of that. But in terms of, we mentioned that 10 year gap, like we said, mm-hmm. we've spoken about, there's a lot of hostility, whether it's from the government and the infrastructure bill, which was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's the mainstream media, do you think we'll get to a point where eventually, um, let's call it the system will turn around and have a change of opinion? Um, or do you think we're going to have to continue fighting this? Oof. I don't have a lot of optimistic opinions there, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think the US government has not proven to be kind in its uh, imperialist motives and losing the dollar's uh, supremacy globally would not be something that would make a lot of people in the government happy. So mm-hmm. I think, so what we've seen so far with Bitcoin's adoption, right, is like when we have countries where it becomes more popular um, than the local fiat, or not even more than the local fiat, but like even a, a mild threat. Uh, we think of the examples like Venezuela or Iran, the governments clamp down on that hard and do all kinds of weird things that are not necessarily good for the industry. And that doesn't end Bitcoin. It's not the end of Bitcoin. It is just more difficult for people to safely use it who aren't like, crazily smart engineers who can build their own computer and use a ham radio and do all these things to protect their privacy. Um, I don't think the future of Bitcoin in the US is um, a smooth ride. I don't think they're just gonna be like, oh, well actually this is good for everyone. So we're just gonna allow it. Um, And because that's not the case and the US is currently the dominant world economy, second only to China, or maybe even on par with China, that's gonna be bad for a lot of people. and I mean, we've seen how China uh, is reacting to the crypto market, right? 
Um, I think that we're going to see a lot more of that. What will happen in the future beyond that could be very positive, right? Like if you had asked someone during the French Revolution, like what will happen to like the concept of democracy, there was like a lot of bloodshed and a lot of hardship before things got better. Uh, so I feel like we're in this the very beginning now of something that's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but that being said, that means it's this incredible opportunity to play like this unique role in history where you can help people gain access to tools that they had no idea existed and opportunities that they never would have had before. And how many people in their lives can say that they have that opportunity to impact so many other people's lives in a positive way? So I'm not like down about the fact that we're in that place in history. I'm excited about the fact that I get to play a role that that actually helps people. I think that speaks true for a lot of society right now. Um, it, it kind of is true for the for the grand scheme of things, you know. Like, I'm a freedom maximalist, so mm. we we've seen a huge um, clampdown on freedom and human restrictions, and I, I do think that we're about to go down a a dark path. And I don't necessarily mean that in a, a dark way. Because um, I always think that there are ways around everything and I think that everything will be fine as long as you associate yourself with like-minded people and, you know, you're smart and you know what you're doing. I think it's fine. Um, but I certainly agree that we are reaching a point. We are on path to reach a point where people will say we've had enough, you know, whether it's with inflation reaching ridiculous highs, people suddenly waking up to see their money losing value. Um, mm. You know, we're talking about food shortages now. We're talking about, in, I don't know about um, in America, but in the UK, we're now talking about... Um, gas prices and it being mm. a very cold winter and not being able to afford heating and things like that I mean okay yeah. it feels like we are on this this weird path um but on a on a brighter note what you, you do a lot of other things I know that you do poems yeah. you mentioned poems mm. so talk to me about the poems you accept bitcoin for them um that's really interesting I'd love to hear more about that oh ETH actually um oh I thought it was bitcoin uh, I mean, I do accept uh, Bitcoin for poems. Okay, so there's like, there's two different poem things. Um, one of which is just like, I literally write you a poem, uh, a custom or um, from my repertoire, if, they, if someone has a particular theme. Um, and then that's just like, like it's like an email for Bitcoin. It's super simple. Um, some people prefer NFTs as the format. Uh, so I've made a few poetry NFTs in which, I mean, just like through Rarible or mm -hmm. OpenSea, people buy the NFTs. Um, I'd say probably like, I usually collaborate with an artist on that to make the visual for it. And I think it's like six or seven that I've sold so far. Really not too many. And it was actually before NFTs blew up this year. So I, the amount of money I made uh, selling NFT poems bought my family dinner. Like it was not, oh, yeah, it was so not cool. a huge amount of money. But that's really cool. No, but that, <laughs> that is so cool. I mean, it, even if you just think about that, but that's still insane, you know. Yeah. You made something, you sold it, and it, it's it's a poem. I think yeah. that's really really cool. So I mean, most people I think that go into journalism, particularly if you're writing, uh, you like to write. So I've been writing poetry since I was like a child, um, and it all started, I guess, in in the crypto space when I made a small poetry chapbook and I sold it uh, using a lightning node. So I would send people an invoice, they would pay the note, and then I physically shipped that book to them. I very quickly realized there was more demand for that than it made economic sense to in terms of shipping. And printing, printing is expensive paper. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's when I started doing like emails and NFTs and other ways to distribute it because most of my buyers actually were international. So like international shipping on a book is a pain, but an email or an NFT is pretty easy. Um, so yeah, I'm, I feel really blessed and lucky about that because it's not common for people to be able to actually make money using poetry, you know? Exactly. So I've been very lucky that, you know, buyers around the world who are interested in my words um, have been able to give me, and sometimes custom orders are really interesting. Um, really? Like What's the weirdest order you've had? Oh, so the weirdest order I had, oh, okay, so two, I guess. One of which was this guy gave me his favorite video game and wanted me to write about smart contracts using the characters from this video game as a poem. <laughs> demanding enjoy, right right enjoy that challenge um and another one was there's a guy who really likes um an, a particular opera that's like an obscure swiss opera and he did, just can't get enough fanfic about it and he was like write me a poem about one of the characters from this opera so i had to like research the opera and the character and like he also wanted me to do it in the style of sufi poetry so like um ancient iranian poetry um, so yeah, in this particular style, about this particular character I'd never met, it was such an interesting challenge and I really enjoyed the outcome.
That is so interesting. I wouldn't know where to start. I That's mean, why I charge Bitcoin because it is hard. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. It sounds pretty difficult. But other than poems and NFTs, what else are you working on? I know you're freelancing for mm -hmm. several different companies, right? Yeah, I'm freelancing and I also am uh, starting my own magazine. It's called Defem. It's actually like a print product. We're going to be distributed in Canada and the US. Um, and also people can order online. And like it came from the idea of someone came up to me and was like, Lee, what would happen if you were to make a tech magazine that was particularly for women? It doesn't mean that everything we talk about is like has to be women, but like think about like, you know, the colors you're choosing, the topics you're choosing, the products that you're, you know, having as advertising. Usually when you're writing tech media, you're writing for like a uh, 20 to 40 urban males like mm -hmm. that's just like the target audience that you're gonna make the most money from so like what if you were just to like not and make it for a different audience what kind of product would you make and I'm very grateful and absolutely thrilled so far we've had over 400 contributors people who gave either money or articles or art um, and together we're like as a community making this magazine and it's just such an interesting experiment so what stage are you at with the magazine uh, right now we are in the stage of going to production so we've got a printer, we are uh, designing and put together all the stuff that we have collected. Um, we're having Twitter Spaces events and other kinds of online events for people that contributed to kind of get together and meet each other and talk. Um, and yeah, we're hoping to be out by later this year. And it's so crazy to say that because like, it's actually really hard to uh, print and distribute uh, like media. Uh, mm. There's like a few monopolies. I don't know about the UK. In the US, there's like, four-ish companies that control all the distribution so like if any bookstore you go into anytime you go into a grocery store and you see something on the shelf like all of that is owned by like four companies and they can charge whatever oh, they want okay. in order to get that shelf space so just like you know the, the internet opened up your ability to broadcast to everybody but then everyone gets bombarded with the slush and print media you just uh, it's very hard to get your foot in the door and especially you're telling someone you want to make a magazine that's crypto friendly they're like what is that and why do we care um so it's been so it's something wait so it's something people can subscribe to and then they mm -hmm. can have it delivered to their door basically yeah yeah as well mm -hmm. okay cool so physical and email uh physical and there's an online component so we will have some right. of the content online but some of it will only be in print so that's kind of like a collectible like a pokemon card or an nft like there are only so many that we're going to print of every issue and so like when you get that you get you get the content although some of it obviously will have like you know, a Twitter spaces with one of the entrepreneurs who wrote an article or like, you know, an interview on the on a newsletter, like a free online newsletter with someone who contributed this. So like we will have some of it like corresponding to online content, but the print thing itself, we're deliberately not doing as like an online uh, media outlet. We're deliberately doing it that like this is small, community driven and exclusive and collectible. It sounds amazing. I think it's really cool. Major congrats. Um, I'm so excited for um, everything to come together for you. Um, but in terms of you, what is your general goal? Um, you know, there's a lot of different things going on here. You know, you have the traditional media, you probably never thought you'd end up in crypto. Now, now you've got the magazine. So what is your goal? What is my goal? Um, yeah, I want to make a living and not feel shitty about what I do to do it. That okay. is a goal. <laughs> as, as someone who worked in journalism, I did not always feel great about what I was doing. Sometimes I felt really great about what I was doing. My goal is to be able to continue to use my skills. And it does, doesn't only mean media. That can also be, you know, educational and or, um, organizational, but in a way that I feel like is good for people. And I mm -hmm. find that's a lot easier to do independently than it is on staff, although not impossible on staff. Mm -hmm. And that will mean working with a variety of different kinds of organizations. Um, and that that's the goal. I'd love just to know before, um, before we say bye, I'd love to know what was it that happened in traditional media that you thought, oh God, I feel awful reporting on this. Oh my God. I, I worked in it for like seven years. So a lot, a lot of things. Like, like what? Like what really made you just go, I can't do this anymore? To be fair, there was nothing that made me do that. I, I don't feel like it's, you know, I don't know, dealing heroin to babies or something. Like, it's not like it's something that's inherently bad. You have opportunity okay. to do good and you have opportunity to do bad. But the thing is like the opportunity to do good is so uh, disproportionate sometimes. Right. Like, I mean, it's a million little things. Like uh, one benign example is I wrote an article about uh, two women filmmakers. Uh, it was so PG. It was so like these two women made a movie. 
like right. nothing controversial. So of course, uh, the editor puts a, a, a spicy headline and a picture of two girls in bikinis making out as the header photo. So I go, walk and I go up to him and I'm like, yeah. why the hell would you do this? This has nothing to do with what the article is about. And he was like, overruled. And it's like a million little- think, Wait, wait, he didn't even give you an explanation. He just said overruled? Yeah, he was just like, my call. And what? it's a million little things like that every day, five days a week, seven years that you just start to think like, I want to have more control over what I'm putting out into the world because his name is never going to appear on that and mine does. And the people who send hate mail and the people, it's not even about hate mail, you know, it's about like the people who are in the article who come up to me and they're like, what happened here, Lee? And I yeah. can't say anything. Um, that's not always the case. I'm, I'm extremely lucky that some of the articles I've gotten to work on with mainstream outlets, I feel like did had a positive impact on readers. I think did a high quality job. I really benefited from the editorial leadership. You know, there's a lot of times it does work out well, but I think being independent gives me the ability to choose which editors treat me that way and to choose to not work again with people who don't uh, have that same ethical standard. I understand. It's so it's so weird when you become um, so awake to all the different biases mm -hmm. that are in the media and what the um, what their purpose is and what their priority is. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, no, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's been really interesting to hear your perspective, obviously, because you you know you spent so much time working in that traditional world and you still sort of do at times. So yeah, that's been really great. So Lee, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And oh, one last thing. Do you have any last words? Where can people find you? Where can people follow you? Yeah, so I will post here in the comments. I don't know if I can post in the comments. Let's have um, a look. Can I? I don't no. think I can. No. Um, so, uh, so I'll put it in sure. the chat and then I will just read it. So uh, following the new magazine I'm working on on Twitter, that's Defem, so D-E-S-F-E-M-M-E-S -M -M -E mag, uh, Defem mag. That's uh, on Twitter, if you can follow me. And I'm also- in the comments. Oh, perfect, the comments. thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And in general, I'm pretty Googleable. My name is spelled funky. So like, if you look for my Substack, it's my name. You know, if you look for me on Twitter, my name will help you bring it up. Pretty much anything you're looking for in terms of my work, I'm pretty easy to find. Perfect, Lee, thank you so much. And guys, thank you so much for watching. We'll be back next week with another amazing guest. We'll see you then. Take care. Yeah,